All right, or there we go. This had to turn it up a little bit. Um, all right. Well, uh, good to see everybody this morning. Um, fortunately, our PowerPoint's working this morning. Uh, this 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 quarter, uh, I decided I would. I'm gonna move this down just a little bit because I might be a little too loud. Um, this quarter, when I started talking to uh, John and Terry about, you know, what I wanted to teach on, um, something that I'd been thinking about for a while was um, about how all of us, you know, j- just about universally all of us in our lives at some point or other, we're going to work. We're going to have jobs. We're going to do different things. Um, and in that work and what we do... Uh, we we have to be the same people we are when we see each other here, right? I mean, we, we need to be the best versions of ourselves we possibly can, do the best jobs we possibly can. And in order to do that, we have to look to the same example that we look to whenever we're living a Christian life, right? We look to Jesus. We look to who He is, um, the way He interacted as a person, as a human being, the way that He worked in the way that he still works today because Jesus isn't done yet. He, he's not done working. And so this whole quarter is really going to be uh, a lot about vocation and about Jesus as well, very heavy on Jesus and how he works, how he worked when he was here and how he works again, uh, still today. So what I want to do today is just start off with a lesson that's a summary just to kind of give information to all of you about what we're going to be covering this quarter and breaking it up into each lesson, just kind of giving you a real short summary of each lesson as we go through. And I decided to title this one, uh, Jesus, a man of many talents, because he is and he was. Um, when, When he walked the earth, he managed to know and see and do many things. In fact, he seemed to understand the full range of not only society, but the occupations of basically every person at every level of society. And among the numerous jobs Jesus talked about and performed were teacher, leader, fisherman, public, public relations. And of course, we know he was a carpenter as well. That would have been his earthly father's occupation. Um, And Jesus wasn't just talented at all these things, but a complete genius in every field. And this has led many scholars, both secular and religious, to claim that Jesus probably had the highest IQ of any human who ever lived. Jesus is and truly was the master, the master of all. We we also have to be mindful of our own vocations as uh, as we seek to work for Jesus in every area of our lives, not just a few, but every area of our lives. I did some research uh, for some, some, I tried to look in the last few years for some recent research about vocation and things like that, that, and I came across a man named David Hagenbuch. In his paper concerning Christian vocation, he states, vocation derives from the Latin verb vocare, to call. And from a biblical perspective, that caller is God. God calls us to work in his kingdom and in other ways. And it's important to note that this calling applies to every area of one's life as there is no distinction between sacred and secular. 
An individual's vocation may include, for instance, his or her role as a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a deacon, a scout leader, a softball player, a church member. Um, As such, a vocation is a unique individualized calling, often not discovered easily, that requires specific talents, offers true enjoyment, and accomplishes something of value. Now, if you think about it, just by time comparison, if you just look at the time that we spend here in this church building versus the time that we spend at work, we spend about ten times more time at work than we do here. Now, the time here that we spend is crucial to the Christian life, but it stands to reason that God is using us in our work for a purpose. So in this introductory chapter of our study, what I want to do is look at the various areas of Jesus' work in and among humans and how we can learn more from him within the framework of his infinite talent, knowledge, and wisdom. There we go. So first off, I want to look at Jesus the man. The first thing we have to understand is, I think, is Jesus as a physical person. Jesus is all man and all God. It's a difficult concept. We won't cover that in its entirety, obviously, in, in any of these lessons because that's not really what this lesson series is about, but it's something we must understand. Jesus was human. Um, we all know this, but what does that mean? There are several areas we could discuss that would help us define Jesus' humanity, but I think the easiest way to see how Jesus was human is to look in the mirror. Look at ourselves. Um, Jesus was susceptible to all the same things we are. He got sleepy and grumpy and probably even sneezy, maybe a few other dwarves. Uh, Sickness and pain and frustration were as much of uh, a way of life for Jesus as it is for you and me. And we'll see more about this as we go through the study. But, you know, you have to consider that Jesus um, probably got the flu, you know. It doesn't mention that in Scripture, but being human, he he probably got sick, Um, Back in the first century, uh, sanitation wasn't great. Um, So people, you know, uh, you got a hold of some bad water or something like that, you know. You could get sick. You could be throwing up all night. Jesus probably had to deal with those kinds of things. Uh, We know for sure he dealt with starvation, dealt with want and need. Um, He went through all the things we go through and more. You think about... You know, he, he uh, would have looked like any other Jewish man of that day. Uh, in fact, he probably would have been around uh, the average height of a man uh, in the first century A.D. was about 5'1", weighed about 110 pounds. By today's standards, he would have been, he would have been a very small man, <clears throat> um, about the size of my wife, Rachel, you know, a small person. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting to think about that because, you know, the, the way that he's portrayed in Hollywood and stuff like that is, you know, six foot four, 200 pounds, you know, <laughs> with long flowing hair and, and, and a white guy. You know, he would have looked very Middle Eastern probably. Darker skin complexion, curly, dark hair, dark eyes, things like that. He's a man, you know, a human being. <clears throat> Someone we have to understand that he, you know, looked just like any, anybody else at that time. And he also had interests. He had knowledge and skills and abilities. And he was interested in people and places and things. 
Jesus also went through stages of intellectual, physical, emotional, and spiritual development. He grew and he changed and became an adult. We'll talk about that more as it relates to Scripture, you know, growing in, in stature and you know, favor with God and man. And, of course, he is God as well. We can't leave that out. But we can't let this get us away from the important fact that of his humanness. Overall, Jesus wasn't just a man, but he was the man. The pattern after which we all follow. He's our pattern. He is the man. <clears throat> Jesus the carpenter. Now, of course, this is an important category to me just because I grew up with my dad being a carpenter um, and a preacher. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> seeing what it's like to actually build things with your hands, to do that kind of hard labor to understand the different things that it takes to do the things that he does. But when people think of Jesus and work, one of the first things they imagine is Jesus the carpenter. And this is obviously due to the nature of his earthly father's occupation. But is this where Jesus' experience with craftsmanship ends? Did Jesus have other areas of craftsmanship that he dealt with? I think we'll see that he did as we go along through these lessons. But carpentry seemed to be a very... Uh, important focus of his life. And he used his vast experience with the craft and art of carpentry on numerous occasions, probably far more often than we realize. His parables and sermons are replete with words like cornerstone, line, build, plumb. <clears throat> you know, he used many, many terms, a lot of the terminology that goes along with the craft or the trade of carpentry. <clears throat> And there's a depth to his understanding and personal enjoyment of making something beautiful and useful that transcends the work itself and moves into a mentality and a practice of being made new in his kingdom. And we'll look more deeply at Jesus the carpenter in a later study. Also, Jesus the shepherd. I am a sheep and the Lord is my shepherd. And we've sung this song many times in worship here. We could probably all recite the 23rd Psalm by heart right now if we wanted to. We all know the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We at least know that. <laughs> There's something about being a shepherd that Jesus not only understood but found extremely instructive for the Christian life and work as well. And Jesus used this type of work to explain the relationship between himself and us. And he uses this example today as well. The work of a shepherd is one of love, sacrifice, and danger. It's a place of authority and protection and care. Um, and our shepherd today, our shepherd Jesus, leads us in a way that would impress Jacob and David, even though they were veritable masters of the trade. You think of them, you know, specifically, Jacob, how he uh, managed to gather the large flocks from Laban, and David, how he protected his sheep from danger, from the lion and the bear. The things that they did to protect their sheep, to guard their sheep, to lead them, and to take care of them, and how much uh, that is reflected in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says the shepherd watching over our souls, we'll, of course, be looking at that more in depth in another lesson, but... We'll also look at his shepherding pattern that continues in the kingdom today. Of course, I'm referring to elders. Um, one of the things that the great shepherd has done is left us a pattern to follow in 
his church to have shepherds who continue to watch over the flock, to care for the flock, to protect the flock. And I think it's still a dangerous area as well to be a shepherd in today's church. It can be dangerous to be a shepherd, and I think that's something we have to take, take into account as well. Of course, also we have Jesus the farmer. Jesus the farmer. Now, of course, we live in Alabama. Agriculture here for as long as this has been a nation pretty much has been huge. Uh, it's very important. Um, my family's lived on the same property for eight generations now, and they started out as farmers, and actually my dad still does a little bit of farming, um, planting a garden every year, things like that. And I love to grow things. Um, I love to grow my tomatoes every year, and cucumbers and peppers and things like that. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to grow something, to plant it and to water it and to care for it and to watch it grow. And you might, as we go through, as you may see so far, you might see a pattern starting to emerge in this study. Um, we're, we're approaching Jesus' knowledge of occupations from what would be called, called the blue-collar jobs first, jobs that require physical labor. Um, and we'll also look at some professional or white-collar jobs and the highest level of work in society as society sees it, too. So we're going to be moving, and as we go through today, you'll see, we're going to be going from kind of you know, labor-type jobs to more um, middle-class-type jobs to then what's considered by society as higher-class jobs and how Jesus is able to do all those. But as far as farming goes, Jesus, I guess you could say he's the farmer of farmers. He, he understood a great deal about what it took to grow things. And I don't think it's just from a human perspective either. And we'll see that later when we go through the Jesus the farmer lesson. Um, being who he is allowed him, I think, to see things as far as how things grow and how things are put together in a, in a very different perspective from the way we do today, obviously. We're very familiar with his parables concerning soil and seed... But where does he draw this from and how does he interpret how this type of work can change humanity? You see, with Jesus, is not just about using the farmer's work as a model, but also telling those who are producers how they can use their own talents and, and might to produce for him. So how can we use his lessons about that to produce for him? Jesus, like you and I, love to watch things grow and to make something good and beautiful and delicious. When we look at Jesus the farmer in a later study, we'll see just how much joy he takes in things that grow. And I think we all love, you know, this time of year, sometimes I get a little bit sad because I see all the leaves falling off the trees and stuff like that, and everything's kind of starting to go dormant and die back. You know, the grass turns brown and things like that. But when the spring comes and we see those first flowers and the first green on the trees and things like that. Isn't that just beautiful? It's just so comforting and uh, so happy. And I love that time of year. I love when the things start to grow again. And I have a feeling that Jesus loved the same thing. Of course, we have to look at Jesus the fisherman. Jesus spent some serious time in boats. I know some of you guys in here, some of you ladies in here probably all also have fished before. Some of my granny, my granny used to love to fish. Um, uh, after my papa passed away, I took her fishing several times, and uh, she loved to do that. 
Um, but he, sent, he spent some serious time in boats. A full third of his core disciple group were fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen. So he not only was exposed to fishing, but immersed in the full scope of a fisherman's life. Jesus knew what it was to be a fisherman. I have no doubt about that. And he used that in many ways in his ministry. While fishing and the act of changing his followers into fishers of men were central to Jesus' teaching, the act of fishing itself seemed to be of some importance to him. Jesus didn't just catch fish, he ate fish. He multiplied fish and he even used fish in his ministry. Jesus, the fisherman, was the best angler you'll ever read about. He didn't need radar equipment, waders, or even a fishing pole. He was that good. We'll take a look into Jesus' tackle box in a later lesson to see just how he viewed the act of work of fishing and how our own work can catch, produce, and multiply today. And again, you know, it's about producing. It's about going out, about working, about using these lessons in our vocations and in our lives every single day. Now, here's a category I don't think we, we pay... I, I don't know if I've ever heard a lesson about Jesus being a cook. But we see instance, uh, several instances in his uh, life and in his ministry where he cooked food, where he was actually uh, doing that kind of thing. <clears throat> and not only that, but there's a production part to it as well. Food and eating together was an integral social and religious activity of the day when Jesus carried out his traveling ministry around Palestine. The Jews still carried out all of the various feasts that are mentioned in Numbers 28 and 29. Besides daily, weekly, and monthly offerings, there were five major religious festivals on the Jewish calendar, and every one of them included cooking and eating. Now, of course, we just finished Thanksgiving, didn't we? What do we do? We cooked a bunch of food. We all got together with our families, our loved ones. And we ate it, and we talked, and we shared, and we hugged, and we kissed, and we enjoyed each other. And we do that in the church as well. You know, we get together, we have a bunch of food, we hug and kiss and talk and share. And that's what Jesus did too, you know. That's what Jesus and his disciples and the early church did together. So cooking and eating, having food together is a very important part of how we interact. Extremely important, vital to how we come together. And Jesus didn't just cook. He created. When we think of the culinary arts, we tend to see them as a means to an end. Some, someone takes the food and adds some spices, applies heat in order to soften and warm and sanitize the food, and then it's ready for consumption. Kind of a basic way of looking at it. But Jesus did more than this. He went a step further and made food something altogether new. He showed humanity how to look at food and other material necessities in a new way. Um, the blessing of food today is no different than it was then. We still need it to live and we need to look at it in a way that makes sense in the context of Christian life. And I don't mean in a, in a legalistic way, but in a way that takes our attention off of the material and directs our heart, soul, mind, and strength toward the spiritual. Something that, you know, something, something that recently uh, uh, David Campbell uh, has come up with is uh, 
the Sunday Lunch Bunch, something you, you may have seen in the bulletin or seen in the, new, the magazine, the latest issue of the magazine that's just come out that John produces, does a great job on it, by the way. Um, and that, the whole idea of that is... Oh, oops, I think I did something wrong. Oh, don't, don't worry about it. We'll leave it there. Um, the whole idea about the Sunday Lunch Bunch thing is to have people come together and to share and to minister to other people. You know, bringing in the college students once a month so we can take care of them and love on them and talk to them and encourage them and having an open invitation to widows and widowers for each meal um, so that they know that they can come in and fellowship and, and enjoy some time together with us um, each, each Sunday lunch bunch. And so we can get to know them better. It's a way for us to fellowship together. So, Now that I've done my little PR thing there for the Sunday lunch bunch, I want to look at Jesus, the public relations representative. And this is shifting into the realm that most people today would identify as a white-collar type of work. Um, it's more in the realm of you know sitting at a desk, doing that kind of work, working with people, things of that, of that sort. The thing I think is important is to know that Jesus knew how to bridge the gap between those who were considered the working class and those who were in the upper echelons of society at the time. And I think today he still knows how to do that. He still knows how to bring people of differing backgrounds together. Interestingly, there was, wasn't really a, a middle class, so to speak, during the early first century. Basically, uh, there were those who lived on most of the wealth and then those who were poor scraping along through life. They lived a subsistence living, just you know, trying to get enough to live on from day to day. Of course, there were exceptions to this, like tax collectors. You, know, you might think of Matthew, uh, the disciple, and eventually apostle Matthew. But even these exceptions would have been considered so far above the poor in social and monetary status as to be considered wealthy. So you didn't really have anybody in the middle so much. You had the people on one side who had most of the the wealth, so to speak. Then you had the very, very, very poor. Um, And we see a a large difference in that today uh, in, in our society. However, Jesus was in the mix with all of these segments of society, and he was able to understand and communicate with all of them. He was able to demolish the boundaries that separated them. This comes to fruition in the early church and later as Paul writes about the equality of humanity. You know, he says there's no slave or free, male or female, uh, you know, bond or so on and so forth. He, he talks about bringing people together, trying to set this equality that we're all made in God's image. Jesus was and is the penultimate PR guy. And we'll look at just how great he is in understanding and dealing with humanity on all these levels as we go through that lesson later on. So, you know, and, and as people, as his people, we can learn from that as well, right? To be able to uh, look at everyone as created in God's image. You know, to look at everyone on an equal standing, an equal footing. Not to go, uh, oh, well, I want to go... Uh, talk to that person because they're like just like me. Uh, we, we need to reach out to those who aren't just like us. We need to reach out to those who, uh, who maybe uh, don't have as many material things or maybe some people who have a lot more 
material things. And we ha- need to look at people from different social and uh, social backgrounds and, and, and uh, you know, any, any kind of background. And that's what Jesus was able to do and still is able to do through us today. <clears throat> the next level, I think, of that, moving into the more white-collar type of jobs, Jesus, the teller, teacher, and trainer. Now, there are three main ways to get information across to people. You can tell them something, and, and telling is basically just giving someone information, okay? Just <laughs> kind of in a way that I'm doing today, um, hopefully a little bit more than that. I t- see, I can tell you that Jesus is God's son, and now you have that information, the end, all right? If I tell you he's God's son, I just told you something. Did you learn something? Yeah. I mean, y'all didn't because you already knew that. But if someone didn't know that and I told them that, they learned something. Jesus is God's son. But teaching goes farther. When you teach someone, you give them the information and then you tell them what it means. So I can tell you that Jesus is God's son and that he died to save you from your sins. And that means that if you become a Christian, you can be with him forever. Okay. So if I told somebody Jesus is God's son, they, they have that information. Okay, so what? But if I'm teaching them, then I have to explain to them what it means that Jesus is God's son. Why is that important? And Jesus did a great job of that too. But the ultimate way, and this is the way Jesus really shined, the ultimate way to get information to someone is through training. When you train someone, you are making a disciple. I can tell you that Jesus is God's son and that you can have eternal life in him thereby teaching you what it means, but you won't really get it if I don't live it. And that's where training comes in, and that's where Jesus really shines because he lived it perfectly. He shows us exactly what it means to be the people that he wants us to be. And that's what the training is all about. Jesus was what you would call today a full professor of teaching about how to live in him. He combined telling, teaching, and training into a perfect synchrony of how to have life and have it more abundantly. And it's that having life abundantly that I think we we can have trouble with sometimes uh, because we let things hold us back. And we'll get to some more of that in in a later lesson. But Jesus knew perfectly how to train people in that abundant life, in that life of, of true, uh, abund- uh, true, true, just blown out living in him. In our study on Jesus, the professor of life, we'll get a clearer view of how he professed life and how those who tell, teach, and train today can produce life and power in their own work. So as we go out and we're trying to uh, bring people to Christ, you know, it's not just about telling them about Jesus. It's not just about teaching them about Jesus. We have to train them about Jesus. That's where making disciples, you know, Jesus didn't say, go teach people. He said, go make disciples, right? There's a big difference in telling, teaching, and training. So we'll look a lot more deeply at that as we go along. Jesus the Son... This is an interesting work category. And I understand that, you know, how being a son might not seem to be work. It might seem to be outside the bounds of work. 
But it's important to realize that not only was the position of son in the first century an occupation, it was an elevated position in society. Now, this is where we're starting to get into the upper echelons, you would say, uh, as the world looks at it, of society, especially in the, the first century. Inheritance and the transfer of power and wealth in the first century Jewish society was very similar to what we see throughout the Old Testament. The firstborn son basically inherited the greatest share of the father's wealth and then carried on the family name. It was uh, the law of primogenitor. You see it throughout the Old Testament. And what would happen is uh, whenever the father died, the wealth was divided up into to three portions. Two-thirds went to the firstborn son, and the other one-third was divided up among the other sons, however many there were. They got, you know, if there were, in, in, you know, in, one, in, in the case of uh, Jacob, he had 12 sons. Well, the firstborn son would have gotten a double portion of his wealth, and then all the other 11 would have had to take the other one-third. So it was a big deal to be the firstborn. So he would take that greatest share, and he would carry on the family name and take care of the family in that way. In Jesus' time, he, as a son, was doing this very same thing. He had all the inheritance. He was the firstborn. And he was expected to rule in his father's house and learn how to be just like him. Not only was this a huge responsibility, it was very hard work and carried with it dominion over hundreds, or in Jesus' case, all of humanity for all time. So this brings us to the upper levels of work in society. In a wealthy and powerful family of that day, the place Jesus occupied would have carried with it great wealth and influence. Not only did Jesus understand this extremely important position, he excelled at it. And we'll look at Jesus as the son later. But keep in mind that as the son, his work was and still is pivotal to our understanding of him and his kingdom, as well as our place in the kingdom as heirs and sons and daughters, if you want to put it that way. But being a son of Christ, that includes men and women, because we all receive an inheritance of that kingdom. Now, the last three categories we'll start with. Well, let's see. There we go. Last three categories, of course, will be Jesus the prophet, Jesus the priest, and Jesus the king. And, of course, we see this throughout the New Testament, this, uh, these roles, very important roles. And all three of those roles were considered at the very highest level of Jewish society in the first century and in the Old Testament. Extremely, extremely important positions of respect and power. While the position of prophet in the Old Testament was definitely one of power and exaltation, it was also one fraught with danger and rejection. When you look at a lot of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, what happened to them? A lot of them were put in prison. They were, they were killed. They had to go through some pretty horrible things. However, in the manner of highly favored prophets like Samuel and Nathan, Jesus was able to bring information from the Father to the world and make a difference that was immediate and eternal. In the God-centered governments of David and Solomon, 
prophets were seen as not only respected, but absolutely vital to doing God's will. As God's special prophet, Jesus was placed in the highest position of being a prophet that any prophet ever had been placed. He was the prophet of prophets. We don't have a modern-day equivalent to that of the Old Testament or the New Testament prophet, but we do have those who are in positions of power today who advise those in positions of power. In his infinite wisdom, Jesus perfected the work of a prophet to such a degree that no other prophet before him or after him could even touch his insight and power. Now again, you know, we, we think of prophecy today and we go, well, you know, prophecy's ended. That's true. Um, but as far as people who are Christians, who have the Word of God, it's incumbent upon us in, in our positions of work to use the principles and the information taught therein to, to advise people in, in those positions, like if, if we're uh, uh, subordinate to someone who works in a, a particular position of power, and we have the opportunity to advise them in a way that is a godly way, to advise them and encourage them in a way that is in accordance with Scripture, then that's what we should do. It makes all the sense in the world. So while we may not be prophets, we can still have the, the kind of influence from God's Word that a prophet in those times would have had because they were receiving God's Word directly from Him. And of course today we receive God's Word through the Bible and we're able to do and make a lot of influence in the ways that the prophets did in the times that they did it. So there's still that, that dynamic of being a Christian and being able to use God's Word to influence in our work and to influence in our daily life. It's a very important part of being a Christian. So in that aspect, we can use that power of prophecy, so to speak. And Jesus the priest. Priests, of course, were also included in the higher levels of society in the first century as well as in the Old Testament. And they were very powerful, but usually to their own spiritual detriment, unfortunately. See throughout the Old Testament and, of course, in the New Testament too, the priests, you know, many times they would get caught up in the power that they had and they would uh, abuse it. They would use it to lead people astray or they would use it to their, you know, for their own well-being, to gain wealth or whatever it may be. But those who humbly carried out God's will were counted as those who were closest to God, not only in proximity, but in heart, soul, mind, and strength. In every way, if a priest carried out God's will the way that he was supposed to, it, it was, he was counted as a, as a righteous man. Jesus' position as our high priest is absolutely singular in all of history. His place of importance as intercessor cannot be overstated. But how does this position of priesthood apply to us in our own work? How do we use this priestly duty in our work today? When we look at Jesus the priest, we see someone who doesn't hide that power or keep it from those who follow him. There's a place of work and importance in the priesthood for all of us, and we need to know what that is. You know, we call, we're called a royal priesthood, aren't we? We are priests today. We are people who carry on God's word to the world around us, 
So in our work, that priestly duty matters just as much as it does here when we worship. That priestly duty should be a part of our daily lives in every facet, especially in our work, especially as we carry out uh, the things that God wants us to carry out. And of course, Jesus the King. The highest level of work anyone could think of, if asked, would have to be a king. There's really no higher level of work that we could think of in this world, I believe. Even during this epoch of history, when the office considered as the most powerful in the world is occupied by one man, it's not really a position of power, anything like what a king wields. So the president, prime ministers, things like that, they, don't, they can't touch really what being a king is. Kings don't answer to anyone. They rule completely and without need for advice or instruction. At least that's how a true kingship should be. This is the kind of king we have in Jesus. He's perfectly loving, just, kind, and powerful. There's no comparison anywhere else or at any other time in human experience. That's the kind of government you and I are under. The government of a king, a perfect king. A king who knows how to rule just in the right way. A king who doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need, he doesn't take votes. He knows exactly what's right. And he performs that justly and rightly in every way. But do you know what the most important part of Jesus' kingship is? It's the fact that he shares it with everyone in his, in his kingdom. You and I are princes and princesses in God's kingdom. We are heirs of that kingdom. We are inheriting that kingdom from God, his children. And as a result, you know, that puts a, a great responsibility on us, doesn't it? We, we know that we need to use justice and love and kindness and be aware of the power that goes along with that. The fact that if we mess up and we aren't as kind as we should be, and I do that, Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm not as kind as I should be some, a lot of times. Or as gentle as I should be a lot of times. And when somebody sees that, then I'm ashamed because I know I should be different. Or I'm not as loving as I should be a lot of times. Um, not as just as I could be a lot of times. But it... it, it teaches us, you know, as, as heirs to the kingdom, that we have not just the responsibility, but the motivation to try to carry those things forward in our own lives and to model them before other people. Because as members of that kingdom, that's something that's a, a very important part of who we are. <clears throat> now, on, on each lesson, at the end of each lesson, I've done a couple of things. Uh, First off, I, I try to, what I want to try to do in each lesson is show a work application, like how this lesson can apply to the work we do. 
and then also have some questions at the very end that we can try to discuss some. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want you to speak up during any lessons. Please do. If, if you have something you want to say, please just interrupt me. You know, say, hey, Josh, or raise your hand, or whatever you want to do. And please say what you want to say, because this, this isn't, you know... I mean, I know I've been up here lecturing the whole time, but, but I want you to have the opportunity to, to please tell me what you think, because I'll learn so much more from you than you probably ever would from me. Uh, from these from these kind of classes, so please speak up. But but um, I will have questions at the end that we can discuss some as well. So you know, hopefully we can do that together a little bit today. But as far as work application goes, I think all of us do different jobs, and we have to make various decisions about how we're going to work for God. And working for God isn't just about the work we do for Him in His kingdom, but the way we accomplish our daily jobs. Working with love, kindness, and deferential treatment toward our co-workers, supervisors, and subordinates must be a part of how we conduct our Christian walk. So no matter who we're dealing with, you know, if, if I um, am leading someone else, uh, I, I need to, to be respectful of them. I need to take care of them. I need to help them, be kind to them, gentle with them. But the same goes for my supervisor. I need to be deferential in my treatment of, of, of him or her um, and my coworkers as well. We think of Colossians 3.17 many times when we consider how we work. Of course, Colossians 3.17, we've heard it many times, especially up here at Kinsing. It says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But what does Paul say immediately preceding this verse? In verses 12 through 14 he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Working in Jesus' name is more than just saying it. It's a change of heart and mind where we live it. This is where Paul ties up the loose ends in verses 22 through 24. He says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Excuse me. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Wow. That's a really freeing thing, isn't it? It's great to know that we are serving the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus himself. And I can think of no better motivation to do a good job than that. That we're serving Jesus. We're serving the king of heaven and earth. So just a few questions. Hopefully we have time. I know we're kind of running out of time. But a few things, you know, if you want to answer these. If a supervisor, co-worker, or subordinate approached you in anger about something you did or did not do at work, how would you react? 
How would you react if somebody approached you in anger about something you did or didn't do? Or something that maybe they thought you did or didn't do? Yeah. Like a calmer kind of Yeah, that's that's great, George. I used to have that when I was in the Air Force that happened to me one time. I wrote a uh, a report that I sent onto the next guy up from me and, and he came to me and he was mad. Oh my goodness. And I couldn't I didn't understand why he was so mad. Um but I stood there and I listened to what he had to say. I mean he was yelling at me. He was mad. And so I just stayed there and I stayed calm and I spoke very calmly to him. And by the end of the conversation, we were cool. We were laughing and talking and everything was good. So, you know, those are important things to, to consider. Um, and especially if it's not your fault. Without consideration, without thinking, the first thing they're going to do is give somebody what they really need. Right. You're going to teach that what they've approached you with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, how do you accomplish your work as working for Jesus? Uh, these are a couple other things to think about. I, I won't go and <laughs> probably won't get to answer them. And what kinds of conflicts might we come across when working for the Lord in our secular occupations? These are some things to think about during the week. As we go through these lessons throughout the quarter, I hope maybe they'll help us in this way. So thanks so much. Appreciate your time.